0: The title of my message this morning is Reason to Trust. Reason to Trust. We're going to be looking at uh, Mark 6. Not only do we have reason to trust in God, but often we're required to move from reason to trust when reason fails. Reason is important and can build the content of our trust. But by itself, reason is a weak position. And God desires for us to be strong, strong in faith, and strong in our trust in Him. It's funny because I always have this thing about reasons. Um, I'll ask someone maybe what they would like or what their preference is, what they want to do. And then they go about giving me their reasons. And I go, the reasons aren't important. What's important is what your desire is. Because if you have the desire, the reasons will be there. We're working in Mark chapter 6. How many of you have been enjoying the series in Mark so far? Amen. And so if you have your Bible, please turn to there as Mark 6 will be the bulk of our text. The way in which I want to break Mark 6 down is to give you three panels, okay? Three, we'll call them panels this morning. So that we can make getting through Mark 6 manageable. But before we jump into our three panels in Mark 6, there is a bit of groundwork that we need to do. And we will do that by looking very quickly at a few key verses on faith and trust. You don't need to turn there because I'll have them on the screen. These verses will help us springboard into our discussion about what it means to trust in God. Okay? First one is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards Those who earnestly seek him. Folks, sometimes we need to file chapter 11. We need to go to Hebrews chapter 11. And we need to read about what God says about faith. In this verse, it talks about believing, but not just that God exists, but the verse calls us to believe something about God, that he is good and that blessings flow from our pursuit. Of him, amen. Our faith is rooted in who God is. The second one is found in Romans chapter 14, 23, the second half of the verse. It says, And everything that does not come from faith is sin. That's it's a very controversial verse. A lot of people are challenged by that when they read that. Everything that does not come from faith is. Is sin. Now, I know we're not looking at the context of what Paul is actually addressing here in Romans. He's talking about eating meat that was devoted to idols. We're not getting into that right now. But it's just a curious end of the verse. Everything that's not of faith is sin. Why is that? Because we sin when we function outside of a place of trust in God. Because our confidence, in that case, is misplaced. And we miss the mark. Number three, and this is a classic verse, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Say it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your, and do not lean on your own. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. This talks about leaning on God. And not on our own understanding. If I was to lean on this little music stand, and I was to put my full weight on it, what do you think would happen? I would go crashing down. Well, this is what the Bible is saying. He's saying it's important to have understanding, but don't lean on it. Don't put your full weight on it over and above trusting in God, over and above putting your weight on who God is. Why? Because our understanding is limited. What we're able to understand, even what we're able to believe about God, is limited. We're finite. We don't have all the information. We don't have full and complete understanding. So when we find ourselves in a place where we've been trusting in our understanding, as soon as, boom, something happens in life that doesn't line up with what we believe, what happens? We have a crisis of faith. That's a good start. So before we jump into Mark 6, uh, let's join together one more time in prayer. Father, meet us in this place. Holy Spirit, have your way. I submit myself to your leading and direction, and I pray that every heart is open to receive. Lord, I know that for some there is pain in this room today. For some there is confusion. For some there is a loss of hope. God, would you meet us here Would the weary find rest for their souls in you. And Jesus, would you lift off burdens today? Would you bind up the brokenhearted? For some in this place this morning there is doubt. For some there is lack of trust, so Lord, by your Spirit, would you breathe life upon them and establish them anew, Lord, that each person would hear from you and that your anointed word would so penetrate our hearts that all would know you in a deeper way. Bring us all to a deeper place of trust and reliance on you, Jesus. In your name we pray. If you agree, say amen. Okay, so panel number one is two stories in it. The first one is a prophet without honor. And the second one is Jesus sends out the 12. Okay, let me read verse 4. It says this, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. It's kind of hard to understand. It's a double negative. just means the prophet has honor, except in his o- own heart hometown among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there. Yep, that's what it says. Except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Interesting passage. Just to recap a little bit about Mark 6, we see that Jesus was doing miracles. He was preaching. He was Calling people and inviting people into a life of repentance. And he was doing many miracles. We remember he healed the demoniac. He healed the little Jairus' daughter. He healed the woman. He healed a, a paralytic. He healed a man born blind. He did all kinds of miracles. Crowds were coming to him. Ministry was excelling, everything was going according to plan. But Jesus comes back to his own hometown. This is the second time he comes back there. You remember what happened the first time he was in Nazareth in the synagogue? They booted him out. So he comes back to his hometown again. This is the second time. And the ministry dries up. Okay, Jesus, it was a good run. You had a a following, it was better than most. You did what you had to do, you said what you said. There was miracles, there was power. That was active, but look, it's it's like, it's obviously over. We need to change the batteries. This could be viewed as a ministry setback. I want to talk about honor just for a little bit, just for a second, okay? It's important. Because after this happens, Jesus makes this curious statement about a prophet and honor. And just asking the Lord, what does this verse mean? I think there's a few things we can glean from it. First, the degree to which we honor is the degree that gives us the capacity to receive from that person whom we honor. Expectations, are hugely important. So what are you expecting? What are you expecting from Jesus? Maybe nothing. What do you expect when you open the Bible and read? What do you expect when you come into a service and raise your hands and worship? What does your heart tell you about your own expectations about what you're able to believe and receive from God? from the church, from this message. I want to tell you, in great measure, expectations in our lives will set the tone for what we experience. Why is that? Well, it's because the intention of our hearts seeks validation. We expect something, and then we look for it. And when we look for it, we have a tendency of finding it. So what does Jesus do when things fall apart in Nazareth with this ministry setback? Does he call it a day? Does he just say, Lord, okay, I'm ready to take my pension? Is it over? Time to retire? Give somebody else a chance? No. Jesus turns and expands. Ministry operations. Isn't that amazing? Opposition is handled by Jesus by increasing his efforts and doubling down, not shrinking back. The next story is Jesus sends out the 12. Verse 7 says this, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority. Over impure spirits. These were his instructions Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. In other words, Jesus was in instructing the disciples to do ministry in such a way that their dependence and their reliance and their trust was completely on God. and to trust in Him for all their needs. Verse 11 says this, And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. I I love this. You know what? If any place is not going to accept you, give them back their dust. Don't take anything from them. Don't even take the dust on your shoes from them. We read in the next verses that the disciples were successful in ministry. They preached repentance and healed the sick with the authority they received from Jesus. Just to recap, he went to Nazareth, ministry setback. Jesus handles it by doubling down, sending out the 12, pushing forward. How many times where we find ourselves in that situation where we have a setback and we're so tempted to just fold the cards? Anybody? There's a great scene. I wanted to play the clip, but I, I never got around to, to getting it, and I don't know if it's, um, I'm able to show a, a clip from a movie. But there is this really great movie. It's called Interstellar where Matthew McConaughey saves the world, goes into space. Anyhow, he's in space, he's in this ship, and he's got to connect with, like, this space station docking thing. And the docking thing is spinning, and the ship is spinning, and he's got to spin the ship like a corkscrew to make it to dock to the, the space station. And the music, Hans Zimmer just does an amazing job with the score. It's a phenomenal movie if you haven't seen it. But... It's just to say that he was faced with a setback. He, In the movie, he was faced with an impossible situation on moving forward. And rather than shrinking back, he had the courage to believe it was possible. And he moved forward and he made it. Cognitive dissonance. That is uh, a big word. Um, basically... What cognitive dissonance is in the context that I want to talk to you about it this morning is. The question, what do we do when our beliefs don't line up with reality? Okay, we are Christians, we believe that God is for us, that God desires uh, for us to be blessed, for us to prosper. We hear Jeremiah 29 and that's our life verse. And, you know, God knows the plans he has for us, that everything's going to go great Amen. So what do we do when our life experience doesn't reflect that reality? That means we're holding a belief in our mind about who God is and about what life is supposed to be like and yet the reality we're facing is not that. What do we do with this cognitive dissonance? There's... An interesting character in the Bible. His name is Job. And this is not, uh, like a selfie or anything. This is not, this is, uh, this is a painting. And you can see on the r- left side, those are the three, his three best buds. And, uh, that's his wonderful wife on the right, I believe. I don't know. And, uh, I apologize for the nudity, uh, but that's Job. Here is Job, and I I don't want to go too far into the story, but just to give you a recap of what Job experienced, Um, the story starts in Job with a scene in heaven. And this character named Ha Satan comes before the throne of God, and God basically makes this deal with Satan regarding his servant Job. This is a scene in heaven that we get, in the initial chapters. Job doesn't know anything about this. He's at home. He's serving the Lord. He's offering sacrifices, even for his kids, just in case they might do something wrong. And it says in the Word of God that Job was a righteous man and a God-fearer. And what happens is, is that Satan comes to God a second time after he takes away everything from uh, Job, and he says, well, he's really only serving you because you still give him his health. So God says, okay, you can take his health, but just don't take his life. Next, we see Job covered head to toe in boils, suffering tremendously. And this is where his three friends come in, And they go through about 25 chapters in the book of Job of conversation trying to cause Job to admit where he must have sinned. Job, you must have done something wrong. We know who God is. We know that if you were really serving God, if you were really a righteous person, if you really were in your heart true to what you are saying, then you would be blessed. This is who we believe God is. So because you're suffering, because you're going through pain, because you've lost everything, your family has all been killed, your, you, all, all your animals have been destroyed, your wealth is gone, it must be, there's no other way for us to understand and comprehend what's happening with you, and we want you to admit it because we know if you repent, God's going to make it right and you'll be forgiven. And Job goes into his response about how he has done nothing wrong. And it gets to a point where God shows up at the end of the book and actually rebukes those guys because they have not spoken about who God truly is correctly. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, God could have just came to Job and he could have just said, Job, listen, I know you don't understand what's going on, but actually there's this thing in heaven and we worked it out and that's why you're going through everything that you're going through. And Job would have been like, all right, but he doesn't do that. God, why don't you do that? That would be much easier if he would just grant some insight to Job so that he can capture the mind of God for the issue of why he's suffering and why he's facing it. Instead, God says to Job, where were you when the oceans were created? Where were you when the earth was formed? What is God trying to say to Job? He's trying to say that your relationship with me can't be dependent upon what you can understand. Because if it's only going to be based on what you can understand and what you can figure out, we're always going to hit a wall each and every time. I need your relationship with me to be based on something much deeper than what you can fit between your ears. We know that story ends up, Job ends up getting restored. It's not about a preoccupation with correct thinking. This is how we do church. We want people to believe the right things. Of course. But we're so preoccupied with that that we start to differentiate between believers. We say, if you don't believe the way I believe, well, well, then we're not on the same team, right? You don't have the full understanding, so we can't sit together. we have It's not that believing the right thing is not important. It, it is important, but it's just when we preoccupy ourselves and make that the end-all and be-all, that's where we miss it. I think of my son Gabriel, and I'm telling him stuff. He's three, and he doesn't understand why he can't do a certain thing. So, for example, he's not allowed to open the front door and run out into the street, right? He doesn't understand why I'm telling him not to do that. He just thinks that I'm preventing him and cutting off his freedom. He doesn't know that there's a truck or a car that's going to come along and take him out as soon as he puts one foot on the road. He doesn't understand the fullness of the reasons, but what does he have to do? He has to come to a place where he trusts me. He trusts his mom and me to protect him from things that he doesn't yet understand. Are you getting something out of this? Okay, Okay, panel number two. Prophet without honor, Jesus sends out the 12. We have two other stories. John the Baptist is beheaded, and then Jesus feeds the 5,000. Herod is blowing out his birthday candles, and the daughter of his now wife wins the karaoke competition. Her prize, John's head on a platter. Verse 29 On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Here in our second panel, we have our second setback. Look, we went to Nazareth. It didn't really work out there, but it's okay. Now we got experience. Send out the 12. Ministry is booming again. Crowds are getting healed again. And just when things are going well again, they kill John. How many feel like, hey, you've been through a few setbacks, and you just feel like you're just getting started again, and you're just rolling a bit, and then bang, something else happens? You know who John was? He was the forerunner to the Messiah. He was, Jesus said this about John. He said, there's nobody that's ever been born of a woman that has arisen greater than this guy. That is a compliment. He was selfless. He he went out to the wilderness. He he gave up everything to go and pursue this calling and to be that voice in the wilderness and he was put in prison. Think of what John was going through in his mind. He was thinking that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to take over. And 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 and, and free Uh, Israel from the bondage of the Romans and reestablish the kingdom Israel. And here he is. he Actually, there's another passage in the Bible where it talks about where John sent some of his uh, disciples and followers to Jesus to, to ask him, what's going on? He says, are you the one that we were anticipating? Remember, this is the one who said he was the one we were anticipating. But now being in prison, facing the setback, he's challenged with the faith that he once had. And Jesus says to the disciples, go back and tell John what you see and hear. That the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the dead are being raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Responds to him back the Isaiah passage that John once quoted. Here we have our second setback. Is it time now to shrink back? We made it a bit further, we, but we are facing now. One of the top guys on our team is out for the count. What does Jesus do? Well, he finds himself in a remote place with a huge crowd of people. And in verse 37, it says this But he answered, You give them something to eat. Here, the disciples are really tired. It's late, there's a huge crowd. And the disciples are coming to Jesus and imploring Jesus, Jesus, please send the crowd away because we're in a remote place and people are tired, people are hungry. And you know what Jesus says to them? You give them something to eat. Us? What do you mean us? It would take, it would take a lot of McDonald's trios to feed everybody. It would take like a lot of food to feed this mass multitude. The calling that Jesus has on our lives will often stretch us beyond our limits. What Jesus is asking us to do is often going to take us outside of our comfort zone. Do you know that verse in the Bible where people say, um, God will never give you anything more you can handle? It's not in the Bible. Okay, anybody who says that, you smack him in the face. It's not in the Bible. Okay? What it does say is that although you face these temptations, God will give you a way out. Okay, that's what it actually says. The disciples and the people were all exhausted in a remote place. But trusting God means being pushed out of our comfort zone and stretched to our absolute limits. Calling is rarely about convenience. It will cause you to move beyond your own ability to reason and understand. How do we begin? You're like, great, I'm, I'm, I'm good. How do we start? Let's do it. Are you the doer type? Let's do it. Well, we start by doing what we can. You see, they said, Jesus, our current understanding, our current ability to reason how we can accomplish this is to think about how much food we can get. Jesus understood where they were at in their minds. So what did he do? He asked them, so how much fish do you have? How many loaves do you have? He met them where they were at. And he asked them to give what they had. You might say, I don't have much. Start where you are. Start with what you have. Because what we have to give to the Lord in the hands of the master is much. Amen? And you know that he has the power and the the ability to to multiply. it. Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. You see, putting our trust in God is a position well supplied. Trust in God is the place of abundance. Trust in God is the place of more than enough. see, John the Baptist was one life. And yet, he was responsible for being the forerunner to the Messiah. And now, the disciples were following Jesus instead of John. And the crowds were coming and were getting healed. Yet, John died in prison. Jesus took a few of those fish and loaves and broke them and multiplied so that all ate and were satisfied. Never underestimate the power of one life. Never underestimate what God can do through you. God can use your voice. God can use your testimony. God can use your life to reach a multitude. You don't know how. You don't need to know how. What you're, what you're calling is to trust God and to be faithful with what he's given in your hands worry about the rest. Be faithful with where you are and what you have. Amen? Even a young boy can do it. It was his lunch. How many of you have heard of a guy named Dr. Mordecai Ham? Three people? Okay, long story short, Mordecai Ham was very instrumental in leading Billy Graham to faith. He was the dude. Never underestimate the impact you can have on another person that could turn around and with the power of God and the anointing can win the world. I want to talk to you a little bit about the role of the Bible. The role of the Bible is not so we can understand everything. The role of the Bible is to model trust in God so that our faith does not rest on whether we can be clear and certain about what to believe. It's a challenging thing, I know, because we've been so conditioned to think it's all about what we can believe is right. Listen, when I gave my life to God, and he filled me with the Holy Spirit, and it was a glorious day, Birds were singing, trees were waving at me, grass was greener, sky was bluer. I'm not kidding. It was, a, it was a radical experience that when God got hold of my life, he made all things new. Do you not want to know how much doctrine I understood? Not a lot. And I'm still on my way. And I can tell you that if I was saved by what I could understand, I would be in trouble. quiet in this pentecostal church faith does not equal belief faith equals trust i wish there was a version of the bible that would take out all the faith words and just put trust instead just just one version we don't need to get rid of the other ones just for us to understand what the Bible's talking about you know there's this another incredible book it's called the book of ecclesiastes okay and this, this book is, is uh, you know, uh, don't read it late at night. It's kind of a depressing book a little bit, okay? Because this guy, some people think Solomon wrote it. Some people think it's another guy. I'm not here to debate about that. I'm just trying to say that this guy was a rich guy. He was known as the teacher. And he went around and he did a bunch of stuff. And his conclusion was that everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Everything is a chasing after the wind. Okay, so there's nothing better to do for, for life than to, to eat and drink and enjoy our lives because we don't know anything else. This was his conclusion after he had planted vineyards, he had uh, built buildings, and he planted gardens, and he did all kinds of stuff. He did everything he could. He took wives, he, and he, he had servants, and it says a whole thing he did. He explored every avenue of life, always having wisdom guide him along the way. And his conclusion at the end was that it's all meaningless. We don't know if humans are even any different than animals. We don't know if the spirit of animals goes down and the spirit of men go up. We don't know. That's what he says. And so you would think, gee, thanks, writer of Ecclesiastes. This was a really encouraging book. Now I can move on with my life. But in chapter 12, it actually has a completely opposite conclusion. And I don't know how he came to this conclusion. Do you want to know what it is? Okay, come back next week. He says it's not about jumping off a cliff of despair. Okay, it's not about giving up. It's not about thinking everything is meaningless. But chapter 12, the last two verses is verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. How did you come up with that conclusion? It was so depressing, the entire book. And then you say, fear God, because he's going to judge every person according, accordingly. You know what he's saying by that? He's saying that despite all I can understand about everything I've investigated and everything I've understood and the wisdom of exploring every avenue in life, I am still going to turn that away and trust God anyway. I'm thankful for these books in the Bible because they offer to us a counter-testimony of maybe what we're used to hearing. The message is trust God anyway. Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39, and 40, the famous Hebrews chapter on faith, the hall of faith. All the heroes of faith are in there, okay? Samson, Jephthah, all of them, right? They're all there. Do You know what it says the last two lines of that chapter? Verse 39 and 40, it says this. These were all commended for their, yet, how many? Yet, none of them, none of them received what had been promised. Whoa. Do I have a different version of the Bible than the rest of everybody? I hate to be a little bit joking about it, but... That's not what I'm used to hearing. I'm used to hearing that if we trust God and believe God, that everything's going to work out. I'm used to hearing that if we do the right things and follow the six steps and and, and take the message and and do it, that everything's going to be fine. These guys held the faith. They kept the faith to the point of death. Some of them were sawed in half. Some of them were were fed to the lions. Some of them were burned alive. Some of them faced all kinds of stuff, and they kept the faith anyway. And it says none of them received, the real version of what it says, none of them received the full extent of what God wanted to do for them and promise them. Okay? Why? Because in verse 40, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You know, a few weeks ago, um, I have a dear friend in Quebec, uh, a young pastor. His name is Mathieu. His wife um, just recently passed away from, from cancer, and she was early 30s they have a little three-year-old boy, about the same age as Gabriel. Our wives were pregnant at the same time. And my heart has just been hurting for this family. And it's been a process of over a year of tests and ups and downs and everything. And they kept the faith right to the very end. You have to understand, they held prayer meetings. It was was province-wide, the fasting and prayer that happened for this family. And this particular young mother, Natanya is her name. And yet she passed away. And I am asking God, can I please understand what is going on here? We prayed, we fasted, we did everything we knew to do. And one thing I will say is that despite all the ups and downs, Natanya kept the faith to the very end. And she always believed that God could heal her at any moment. Do you know what the husband said after she passed away? He said, even now I believe God could raise her if he chose. That's faith. That's trust in God. And yet I don't understand it, why these things happen to even faithful, good people, as I would see. Out of time. Panel number three. It is Jesus walks on water. Okay? It says this, at the tail end of verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Verse 52 For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts. Hardened. The disciples were terrified. Jesus sees them straining at the oars, okay? And there's wind, but yet they didn't get it. One commentator put it this way We live under the dominion of the divine, not under the fear of the external and the transient. If the disciples would have understood with their hearts about who Jesus was in light of the miraculous multiplication of food, they would have also understood his sovereignty over the waves. You see, trust is supposed to be a a, a cumulative effect in our lives where each degree of trust that we step out in faith and believe God is a building block for what's up ahead. You know, I heard this about the storms of life. If you're not in a storm, you're heading for a storm. You know? That's something to look forward to. And, you know, you think just after you finish the storm that things are going to be great now, okay? Things are going to be smooth sailing the rest of the way. Let me pop the bubble, okay? It's never like that. What we go through and what we endure is for our growth so that the next thing we go into can help someone else and we can grow even more. supposed to be a building block. Verse 56 and wherever they wherever he went into villages, towns or countryside they placed the sick in the uh, oh they placed the sick in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and how many? And all who touched it were healed. I understand that calling us this morning to a place of trust in God is easy to say. Okay, it's easy to say. I want to admit that to you. It's easy to say. It's difficult to live. What about those people who are just getting by? It's hard to live by faith when our own basic necessities of life are in jeopardy, and we are literally just surviving. Can I say that it's at this point that we find out that there is truth in the statement when God is all I have, that's when I discover that he's all I need. He's all I really need. I'm not saying it's easy. I know many people are suffering. I know close people to me whose lives have been Literally ripped apart. And I talked to them on the phone, and, and, and they're saying to me, Jordan, where is God in all of this? What I believe and what I'm experiencing has a tension between it. And I can't understand it. What if we reinterpreted how we saw the circumstances of our lives? What would happen if we understood that the chief aim of God in our lives is to bring us to a place of dependence and full reliance on him? How would that affect what's going on? How would we see our lives differently? How would we read scripture differently if we understood that what God is actually trying to do is bring us to a place of dependence on him? Wouldn't that change the perspective of what we're facing? I think so. Courage is a requirement of trust. Surrender is also a requirement of trust. And that's what makes trust a paradox. Adam and Eve, do we have that picture? Adam and Eve is an example of... Adam and Eve is an example of a situation where reason was elevated above trusting God. What do we do with the pages of Scripture that talk about the Proverbs, that talk about, God, where are you in my suffering? This is Israel's counter-testimony. You know, if you wanted to create a religion, you would probably just make it about a God who, when you served them and did everything right, that everything worked out for you. But that's not the case. We have many Psalms where... Uh, David cries out to God, God, how long will you let the wicked prosper? I see it's all working out for them, and it seems like their life has no trouble at all. How do I understand this? How do I understand what the Bible, what we talk about the Bible as a counter testimony? What do we do with those passages? Like I said, I know people who are asking the question, where is God in all of this? How would our perspective of our circumstances change if we understood that the chief aim of God is to bring us to a place of reliance and trust in him? Pastor Jeff, I'll invite you back just to begin playing, and then I'll get the band after. And I'm going to invite my good close friend, Carly, to come forward. Why don't you give her a hand for her courage? Okay Come on up, okay, now, um, Carly, uh, thanks for coming. Now, you don't really know what this is all about, right? Okay now the the question that we're all wondering is, do you trust me? Okay. So, um why don't you stand over here and face this way over here, okay? Like facing the speaker. Okay? I'm going to stand over here. Okay. Now, I want you to close your eyes. Okay. Now, I want you to take 3 steps forward. Doing good. One more, one more. Okay. That was good. Okay. Now I want you to try something different. I want you to take two steps back. She's doing good, right? Okay. How about we do something different, okay? I'm going to ask you to stand over here. You can open your eyes. Okay. Face Pastor Jeff. Face Face the screen. Okay. Now, Close your eyes again. Then take two steps forward. Okay. Now I want you to. Now I want you to uh, open your arms, stretch stretch out your arms wide. Up, yep. Yeah. Okay. Now again, I'm going to ask you, do you trust me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why don't you take two steps back? One. Two. Okay? Keep going. Take another two steps back. One. Two. Don't worry. I, I'm watching for you. I'm your eyes and ears. Okay. I'm I'm looking at what's going on. Okay? Now I want I want to hold your hand and I'm just you're just gonna trust me, okay? I'm gonna cause you to s- take a few more steps back, okay? One two. Two more. Don't worry. Don't worry. Right there is good. Your arms are wide out. Is that right? Don't look around. One more time. Carly, do you trust me? Nope. (laughs) Just pretend that I'm Jesus, okay? Say... When I say, do you trust me? You say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Do you trust me? Now lean back. You can do it, Carly. Though you can't see, though you don't understand, you can put your trust in God. Give her a great hand. (laughs) Invite the band back. You were so awesome. I just want to conclude this morning. You got something out of this? Got a few things out of this? Okay. Just bring it to a conclusion and we'll pray, okay? The conclusion is threefold. Number one, what is it really about? It's about not rooting ourselves in what we can understand, but it's about rooting ourselves in the character of God, that He is good that he is faithful, that he will make a way when there is no way, that God is able to do more than we can ask or think through Christ Jesus, that though I don't see how it's all going to work out, I trust my God, and though he slay me, I will still lift up his name. We root ourselves in seeing Jesus, the author and finisher of our Trust. Read it that way for a second. The author and finisher of our trust. Because whenever I will question the faithfulness of God, whenever I can, through my lack of understanding, say, God, where are you? All I need to know is, all I need to look at is the cross. And see that he was faithful to the very end for my sake. And that if he went to the cross and took the nails and the lashes on his back for me and rose out of the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit on the third day, then I know in my situation, he's not going to abandon me. My God is faithful. Number two, we have to understand the tension in the process. And that the process is sacred. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the tension between what we can understand and what we believe, okay? This journey of faith for everyone is a sacred journey. Everyone's journey is sacred. It's about trusting God more than trusting in what you currently believe about God. Otherwise, that if we don't do that, then God is limited to the box and the limitations of what we can comprehend. And I don't want, I don't want to live with that limitation. And number three, there's a quote from Samuel Rutherford. It says, this grace grows best in winter. We've heard about the seasons of our life. Sometimes we're in a summer of our life, the fall of our life and the spring of our life, and the winter. I didn't get them in order. It's okay. The winter of our life. And this is where grace grows best. I was never told that. I was never told to embrace this part of faith. I was never told to embrace the difficult and the trying times because that's where I'm going to grow the most. I was never told that about my faith. We sort of just skirted it under the rug and not dealt, not deal with it. You know, there's a great passage in the book of Ezekiel, and I, I won't get into it. I'll just read verse five. It says this, he measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. You see, here's Ezekiel. He has a vision of this river, and he steps in, and he's like ankle deep. And then the person that's with him tells him to go a bit further. So he goes a bit further, and he ends up knee deep. Okay? We've all heard about knee deep Christians. He gets a bit further, and he, he gets to a place where it's up to his loins. And then it gets to a place, he keeps going and going, and he gets to a place where he says, I can no longer walk in this river the only way for me to cross this river at this point is to let go and trust God. Some of you are at that place where the water has risen so high that the only way to get through is to let your feet go and trust in God. When I was making the move to Ontario, this particular song from Hillsong was... uh, was really meaningful to me. It's, it's called Oceans Where Feet May Fail. And the Course says this, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters, wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. That's good stuff. It is well with my soul. Babby Mason said this in a song called Trust His Heart. All things work for our good, though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us from the truth. Our Father knows best. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just don't see him, remember you're never alone. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. He sees the master plan. He holds the future in his hand. So don't live as those who have no hope. All our hope is found in him. We see the present clearly. He sees the first and last. And like a tapestry, he's weaving you and me to someday be just like him. He alone is faithful and true. He alone knows what is best for you. When you can't trace his hand, when you don't see his plan, when you don't understand, trust his heart.